Hi, my name is Nelson Bennett, and this is the Merovingian Podcast. After last episode's trial, this week we're going to take a look at the fate of failed nobles, Fredegund's politicking in Neustria, and Guntram's long-awaited baptism of Clothar II. In a shocking twist, it's going to be a lot of politics in episode 67, Different Types of Justice. The two nobles we will discuss are Wado, former companion of Regunf and Gundervold, and Childeric the Saxon, former turncoat of Guntram's court. Each man exhibits a slightly different context for getting caught in between the Merovingian kings. Let's start with Wado. Wado had originally been one of the men tasked with delivering Rigunth to her marriage in Spain. When Chilperic died, he abandoned the princess and instead threw his lot in with Gundervold. When Gundervold's rebellion had faltered, he had been among the leading men who had betrayed the usurper and managed to escape by giving up one of his sons as a hostage. Unfortunately for Wado and his family, his luck didn't exactly improve after this. He was killed, rather embarrassingly, in a dispute over some horses with another noble family near Poitiers, after his wife and sons had begged him not to get involved. The interesting part that Gregory tells us about is actually the fate of his sons. We've seen disgraced nobles like Guntram Boso survive, but we've yet to see the consequences for their children. With their father's ignoble death, the sons of Wado were placed in a difficult position. Their father had burned bridges in the courts of Neustria and Burgundy, and while they retained some land around Poitiers, it was a precarious existence without a royal patron. Now, I hear you asking the obvious question. Well, if they're unwelcome in Neustria and Burgundy, why not go to Austrasia and seek the patronage of Childebert II? Very good point, listener. And the sons of Wado had almost exactly the same thought process. There was only one big problem with this plan. Wado had risen to power under the patronage of Chilperic and Fredegund, and the land he had been given around Poitiers was likely given by them when Chilperic had controlled the area. Now that Childebert ruled Poitiers, it is unlikely that he had looked favourably upon these former supporters of his rivals, ruling lands that he had not given them. So what Wado's sons really needed was an incentive, something that would sweeten the deal to convince Childebert to support them. And they embarked upon a rather high-risk plan. They basically began acting as robber barons, robbing merchants and even royal officials on the road near their lands, and amassing stolen wealth. Becoming criminals might seem like a counterproductive strategy, but it could have held some kind of merit. It was basically the old-school Frankish mindset, treasure and power being more important than everything else. Their hope seems to have been that they might be able to amass enough wealth to effectively bribe Childebert 
so that he would endorse their actions and give them his protection. The sons of Wado continue this behaviour for a while, until they were confronted by Count Marco. Fresh off the back of crushing the revolt in the nunnery, Marco tried to put an end to the violence, but the two sons managed to escape the Count and make their way to Childebert. Now that his Count was targeting them, it was time to roll the dice with the King. When Marco appeared to deliver his taxes from his area into Childebert's treasury, the two sons of Wado also appeared. They handed over a huge baldric, decorated with gold and precious stones, as well as a fine sword with a pommel made of gold and Spanish jewels. Now, it seems that their plan was to kind of out-bribe Marco, which honestly wasn't a terrible plan. The problem was that these middle Merovingian kings were much more settled than their vain and greedy predecessors. I could see this plan possibly working on, say, Clovis or Clothar I, but Childebert II wanted nothing to do with it. Stability was his goal, and the first thing he did was ask about the crimes that they had been accused of. Upon confirming that these were in fact the men he had heard about, he had the two brothers locked up and tortured. Under torture, they revealed the location of their treasure hoard, which consisted not only of their stolen goods, but also of the treasure that Wado had managed to steal from Gundervold. Childebert sent his men to secure the hoard, and it was added to the royal treasury. The elder brother had his head cut off for his crimes, while the younger brother was simply exiled. These events show the change in Merovingian governance. As we've seen at multiple points in this podcast, Childebert II was not a gentle or a kind king. He was more than willing to indulge in horrific tortures, harsh punishments, and rather aggressive tactics. But he was different to the early kings in the way that he approached his kingship. He was now more than a warlord with only the loosest traditions binding him. The Merovingians were still naked autocrats, but their rule was becoming more codified. There was more legal precedent being used, and more of a focus on justice, however harsh, and stability. The sons of Watto failed in their bid in large part because they hadn't realised the changes that had occurred in the kings of this middle Merovingian period. Now, on to Childeric the Saxon. Childeric had previously been one of the nobles who had defected from Guntram's court to Childebert's. After the Treaty of Andalo, though, such behaviour was no longer allowed, and technically, Childebert was meant to send all of these men back into Guntram's authority. But the example of Childeric shows that this was often easier said than done. As we've discussed before, this agreement between Childebert and his uncle ignored the obvious fact that men like Childeric had run from Guntram's court for a reason, and would not return willingly. Childeric had killed another rogue noble named Vedast, 
and had fled to sanctuary with Gregory in the church of St. Martin. Guntram had prevented Childeric's wife from joining him in an attempt to draw the man out, but Gregory had negotiated on their behalf. Childeric had promised not to go over to Childebert, and in exchange, Guntram had allowed his wife to join him in Tours. Childeric then immediately repaid Gregory's kindness by fleeing Tours and going over to Childebert. At this point, Childebert was still feuding with Guntram, so he made Childeric a duke of some lands beyond the Grand. This is where things get a little more messy. Childeric apparently began committing some crimes in his new position, and eventually fled to the town of Alp, where his wife owned some property. Childeric heard of Childeric's crimes and sent orders that the man be killed, but Childeric conveniently died before the order reached Auk. Apparently, the Saxon got too drunk on wine one night and choked to death on his bed. How lovely. But there are some reasons to question Gregory's version of events. At no point is the agreement in the Treaty of Andlo mentioned as a motivating factor, which is a little suspicious, given that it is important context. Also, Gregory lists Childeric's, quote, great number of crimes as, quote, murders, public affrays, and misdemeanors of all sorts, end quote. As I've pointed out before, when Gregory lists things of this type, it's always a little suspicious, both for its convenience and for the vagueness that he tends to use. While it's impossible to tell for sure, there is absolutely the possibility that the crimes either didn't exist or were simply excuses for Childebert to move against Childeric in order to appease Guntram. We know Guntram had already complained that Childebert wasn't upholding his end of the agreement, a strong motivator for Childebert to move against the problematic figures like Childeric. It might also be tempting to point out that Childeric accidentally dying was super convenient, but such deaths did happen all the time, and it is entirely believable for an exiled noble to die in this way. With that, let's move on to our friend Fredegund. In our first two stories this episode, we looked at justice, with Childebert working hard to resolve difficult situations in his kingdom. So, how does Fredegund resolve difficult situations? Well, in the town of Turunai, feud developed between two prominent families. In a sort of reverse Romeo and Juliet, a daughter from one family married a son from the other. The husband disrespected his new wife by openly philandering with so-called loose women. The wife's brother took offence to the treatment of his sister and confronted the husband about his behaviour, but the husband ignored him. Furious, the wife's brother attacked and killed the husband, along with some of his relations. This roused the husband's family, who murdered the brother, sparking an all-out war between the families. This ran through the entirety of the families, with only one man being left alive from the original two families. This original conflict 
then spiraled out of control once the relatives of the original families got involved. Gregory tells us that Queen Fredegund tried multiple times to put a stop to this conflict, but her attempts all failed, and violence continued between the two sides. Fredegund warned them that if they didn't make peace, she'd be forced to prevent things becoming what Gregory calls, quote, a public nuisance of considerable dimensions, end quote. But this also failed to bring about an end to the conflict. To be fair, diplomacy had never really been Fredegund's strong suit. In the end, she invited three men who were at the core of the remaining survivors to dinner. She made them sit together on the same bench, separate from their servants, and invited a great number of other people and served them all an elaborate meal that lasted quite a long time. Eventually, darkness fell, and the table was removed, as was Frankish custom, but the men remained on their bench with their servants. They all got drunk on wine, including the servants, who began to fall asleep while their masters continued drinking and talking. At this point, three men entered and lined up behind Fredegund. Carrying heavy axes, they moved behind the three men who, thanks to their drunkenness, were unaware and continued talking. These men then swung their axes and decapitated all three men. After the deed was done, Fredegund then sent everyone else home. Now, Gregory tells us that the relatives of the three men were enraged by Fredegund's heavy-handed attempt at justice, which is entirely believable. He claims that the family sent messengers to Childebert to argue that she should be arrested and executed, which is also possible. But then Gregory claims that Childebert sent men to arrest her, but she managed to escape. This is less believable since Childebert didn't really have the authority over Fredegund to do this, and to send men after her would constitute an invasion of Neustria. It seems highly unlikely that he would risk such a provocative move over some dead locals. But the story is an interesting contrast to the others that we've talked about so far. Where they showed the developments of legalism and attempts to bring formalized order and justice to the kingdoms. Fredegund's story is kind of a throwback. Of course, it is Gregory writing about Fredegund, so everything must be taken with a big pinch of salt. But the story brings to mind things like Clovis and the vase of Soissons. Just like Clovis in that story, Fredegund did deal out a sort of brutal, arbitrary justice. But also like Clovis, the justice seems to have been less because of the crimes committed and more because of the disrespect shown to her personally. In this age of more settled rule, it's interesting to see some good old-fashioned Merovingian spirit, and from a queen, no less. The last part of our episode is also about Fredegund. Previously, we have talked about Fredegund and the kind of cat-and-mouse game that she was playing with Guntram since the senior king had left Neustria, apparently fearing assassination. One of his last major acts in Neustria was to attempt to sideline Fredegund, 
he had managed to force her out of Paris, but she retained a major influence in the kingdom. Since then, Fridgun had been playing a delicate political game, with her son as her major bargaining chip. She knew that Childebert and Brunhild desperately wanted to invade and get revenge on her for the murder of Sigebert, as well as a host of other reasons. But she also knew that Guntram couldn't afford to let his nephew do this for a couple of reasons. First, it would probably upend the power balance in Childebert's favour, making him too powerful for Guntram to control. Second, Guntram was concerned about the continuation of the Merovingian line. If something happened to Childebert and his sons, Fredegund's son Clothar II would be the last Merovingian. He needed that child to survive, kind of like a biological insurance policy. So, a kind of three-way stalemate had developed. Childebert couldn't move against Neustria because of Guntram's protection. He couldn't afford to face Guntram's power, and he needed to stay on the senior king's good side in order to remain the official heir. Guntram was too afraid to return to Neustria, even if he felt he could put things in order there, which seems unlikely given how ineffective he'd been previously. Plus, Fredegund was a useful counterbalance to Childebert and Brunhild, and Fredegund needed Guntram's protection and endorsement of Clothar II as a legitimate Merovingian, but she also wanted to build her own power in Neustria. One of the major ways she did this was by using the baptism of her son to humiliate Guntram. Several times, she had invited Guntram to baptise Clothar, only to pull the plug at the last minute. This had made Guntram look weak, like he was at Fredegund's beck and call. In response, he had publicly questioned her motives, openly raising the possibility that Clothar wasn't actually Chilperic's son, and thus perhaps not a real Merovingian. This had spooked Fredegund who had gone to extensive lengths to disprove the accusation and appease Guntram. On top of this, the Treaty of Andalo had solidified Guntram's alliance with the Austrasian court of Childebert and Brunhild, isolating Fredegund and putting her and the Neustrians in danger. Her response to this was to invite Guntram once more to sponsor Clothar's baptism, which would be a public statement in support of the child king's legitimacy. She sent messengers to Guntram's court, asking him to come once more to Paris and arrange the baptism, receive Clothar from the baptismal font, and adopt him as his own son. Guntram was obviously wary, and arranged things in a very particular way. He sent several important bishops ahead of him, telling them that he'd join them in Paris soon. He then delayed his trip, apparently due to gout. This is possible, he was nearing 60, but it's also possible this was a deliberate tactic to force them to wait, underlining his own authority. When he did set off, he arrived not in Paris, but at one of his estates outside of the city. 
Then he made another power move, ordering that Clothar be brought to him there, rather than coming into the city himself. Clothar came, and arrangements for the baptism were made in the nearby village of Nanterre. Now, things seemed to be going well for Gundrum, right? He had pushed hard to make clear that Fredegund and the Neustrians needed him, reversing all the embarrassing episodes from the past. And they had gone along with it all, knowing just how much they really did need him. But, of course, Fredegund was obviously going to find a way to twist things to her advantage. So, before the baptism, Guntram received messengers from Childebert. These messengers were quite harsh, accusing Guntram of breaking his promises in the Treaty of Underlo to Childebert by being busy, quote, establishing friendly relations with his enemies, end quote. Gregory also records them saying, quote, God will set in punishment on you for having forgotten all your pledges, which were, moreover, freely given, end quote. These were pretty sharp rebukes from Childebert, and he made explicitly clear that he considered Fredegund and her son Clothar to be his enemies. Guntram reacted predictably, refusing the notion that his actions there broke the terms of the treaty, and claiming that the request of baptizing his brother's son was one that no Christian could refuse. He claimed his intentions were pure, and there was no deceit or malice behind them. See, Fredegund had forced Guntram into a rather precarious position. He needed to walk a fine line in this statement, hence the reliance on Christianity and morality to excuse his actions. The public confrontation was also embarrassing for the senior king, and it worked just as Fredegund had probably intended it to driving a wedge between him and Childebert at the same time that he was strengthening his ties to Neustria. Guntram dismissed Childebert's messengers, stepping forward to the baptismal font and performing the ritual. When he received the boy back, he gave a rather prophetic speech, which I'll repeat in full. Quote, May he grow to man's estate and be a living embodiment of this name. May he one day enjoy such power as the king who bore the name before him. End quote. By the living embodiment of this name, he wasn't actually referring to the Merovingian name, but the actual name Clothar, which can be roughly translated to mean clear. This might have been a dig at the suspicious element in the Neustrian elite, but the second sentence is actually the interesting one. The previous king to bear the name Clothar was Guntram's father, Clothar I, the last king to reunite all the Frankish kingdoms under his rule. Both Guntram and Gregory would pass before this prediction would come true, but Clothar II would eventually reunite the kingdoms once again, though more on that later. That was the end of the drama. Guntram and the Child King threw each other banquets, exchanged gifts, and then the senior king departed Neustria, returning home. Fredegund's ploy had worked. She had solidified her son's claim to his throne 
and greatly enhanced his prestige, while also driving a wedge into the friendly Austrasian-Burgundian alliance. Well done, Fredegund. In her mind, he'd finally found justice for her son. His position was finally secure. I hope you've enjoyed this episode and the discussion of different types of justice in the kingdoms. Next week, we'll take a break from politics and take a look at some religious developments and what they tell us about Christianity and its place in the kingdoms. See you then.